City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance This is an American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. It is located on 42nd Street in New York City. Here is where the wonderful quality theatre all comes together, from off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway, to meet and to share and to nurture the quality of theatre and the magic of theatre. The American Theatre Wing has long been occupied with quality because its Tony Award was founded on that premise to reward the achievement of excellence in the theatre. It is a wonderful award and we are justly proud of it. However, all through the year, the American Theatre Wing works on programs that will be of service to the community through the theatre from our Saturday Theatre for Children program, which goes into local schools in their districts in the five boroughs of New York, elementary school-aged children line up to see a professional theatre. We go into hospitals with theatre and cabaret and all kinds of wonderful performers who come to share theatre with those who cannot come to it. We go into hospitals and nursing homes and aid centers. And a program that is called Introduction to Broadway is just that, where we have, in cooperation with the New York City Board of Education and the wonderful, wonderful generosity of the Broadway producers have brought thousands upon thousands upon thousands of youngsters to their first Broadway show and, in majority of cases, to their very first show itself. This is done with the generosity of the producers, and it is also done because it's the American Theatre Wing. And it is also done, I hope, because it will bring an audience of the future to our shows, which is what we need, that young audience. The seminars are still another part of the Wing's programs. And here, this is geared, these seminars are geared to show you what it is to work in the theatre what it is to work in the theater as a performer, as a playwright, as a director, as a producer, as a press agent, as a representative of the unions and guilds, how they work for you and how to work with them in having them work for you, and the set designer, costume designer, and light designer. All of the WING's programs are committed to education, as well as a commitment to the community. And they all say theater loud and clear, and they say it year-round. I think we are perhaps, we've had the longest run in New York City 
and the longest influence and largest influence across the country, both with our Tony Awards and with our programs that really service the community. Right now, this seminar is on the performance, and I'm going to turn it over to Brendan Gill, who is an author and a critic, and usually wears a hat of author here and not critic. He just adores the theater. And George White, who is president of the O'Neill Foundation. And they, in turn, will introduce this wonderful panel of performers to you. Thank you for being here, and thank you for being here. On my uh, far right, is a man whose name is a two-line rhyming poem, Michel Bell, and on, uh, who is now playing Joe in the great new triumphant uh, production of Showboat. And on my near right is Rosemary Harris, who is playing uh, Sybil Burling in the production of The Inspector Calls, which is one of the most successful and thrilling productions on Broadway. George. Uh, thank you, Brendan. On uh, downstage left uh, is uh, Audra Ann McDonald, a uh, recent Juilliard graduate who is currently appearing as Car Carrie Pipperidge in Carousel. I'd forgotten that was her last name. It's nice to know it again. Um, immediately on her right is uh, Charlotte D'Amboise, who is uh, uh, presently the designated hitter, designated hitter in Damn Yankees, otherwise known as Lola in the Broadway production of, of Damn Yankees. And on my immediate left is uh, Lynette McKee, who uh, has seen, been seen frequently on television and film, and I want to talk about that at some point, and, but is currently performing uh, the role of Julie in uh, the acclaimed showboat. So, here we are. We had been expecting to have this morning, and, and was, well, I'm unable to have this morning, Philip Bosco, also from the Inspector Calls, uh, who had uh, himself, not as the Inspector, called in ill. It was too bad. <laughs> but both Rosemary Harris and he, acting in uh, this play, which has received so much uh, praise and discussion uh, about its set, its prodigious set, which uh, is a, a miracle of stagecraft and also, however, of deceptive perspective. So you can't really tell how big or how small anything is on that set, but it does require the actors to be almost acrobatic. It's, it's, it's a test of, of uh, your, of your uh, skill uh, physically to get around, I would think, in that set. Has that set uh, produced any difficulty for you? Well, not really. You have to have some sort of relationship with a mountain goat, though, to navigate it. <laughs> Especially Mrs. Burling, because I have three-inch high-heel shoes, which just makes it a little hard. No, we've been very lucky. We had a couple of little accidents at the very beginning, but that's only natural. It was very exciting. I've never been in a musical, and it gave me a feeling of what it must feel like, because I've never really been in anything that heavily technical before, and we were all so thrilled just watching it all happen. It was very, very exciting. You don't of course, get now, damp, do you? No, I don't get no. Mrs. <laughs> There's a lot of rain in this place. Yeah. <laughs> now, Mrs. Burling's very smart. She covers herself up with a blanket. But Jane Adams gets absolutely soaked to the skin, and so does um, Marcus. 
And um, Philip gets pretty wet too, so maybe that's why he's got a cold. Philip Roscoe, for example, the house which opens up, it's like an enormous and a dream, a fantasy of a doll's house that yeah. anybody would want to have. It is. If only one had a castle to fit the doll's house into. But, but the, uh, there's a point, for example, when, when Philip, who's a big man, has to come out on a balcony, and, and, and he just, it's dodgy to see how he's going mm. to get through that doorway yeah. and still be in scale with everything. And, and uh, I thought that, w that, that this was one of the cases where the, the actors would always uh, be under a certain amount of tension to be inside the play, to be inside their characters, and also, however, uh, having to be in, in what amounts to me out of the audience as almost a circus, a circus yes. atmosphere. Well, and I couldn't believe it when the rain came down <laughs> along with all the other troubles. George Bernard Shaw says, uh, habit is everything. So it seems very natural to us now. But I remember the first technical rehearsals, Stephen Daldry, our director, would say, can you get a little bit further to the edge, you know, because you're, you're not lit there. And I said, well, just give me a day or two. I'll get a little closer to the edge. <laughs> <laughs> and now I stand right on the edge and sort of teeter around perfectly happily. Brendan, if you're going to talk about scenery and having to work with scenery, what about yes. Michelle? Yes, yeah. what yeah. about that? <laughs> that, that, that uh, the showboat, uh, which has the showboat of all time, filling this enormous stage. It's one of our biggest stages anyway. And, and uh, it is a showboat, multi-level uh, showboat with, with real windows and real doors and real decks and real, I guess, real bales of cotton. And, and uh, uh, Michelle, as, as Joe, has to wander debonairly along that and in and out of it, as the other actors all do. But I think this is a function of what has happened on Broadway in recent years, that of, of, of having to uh, borrow the most... Uh, uh, the, the oddest skills of the movies to make things real on stage. So we're always engaged in spectacles that we never could have encountered uh, 20 or 30 years ago. It's a big challenge to, uh, to see how you can do all of this kind of thing. And, and uh, you're living in a world there. Oh, yes, we are. Uh, Brendan, we, 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 um, we have to give thanks to uh, Hal Prince and his, his, his con conception of uh, trying to make lifelike you know, um, the, the entire plot of uh, Showboat, in that um, it's, it's an old story, okay, and it speaks throughout, I think, uh, the ages, you know, of, of time, just right through the channel of time. And it's kind of a, an, an ironic thing when you look at um, uh, the life of when, of when in 18, 1880s, you know, of how everything was socially as well as uh, um, racially um, and as well as the family structure. Um, it hasn't changed, okay? And so he's, he's, he's like, you reached down inside and pulled that out to the forefront so that we can at least, it, it's more palatable, I think, a lot for the audience now. And so that we can be more natural and more at ease you know, and I think also adding to that, like you say, um, the the enormity of the set, mm. it's it's life, the it's, yeah, and, and the, the danger, danger of the yes. set. I, I yes. wanted to get into that yes. a little wow. bit because uh, ask about mm. that because uh, I want to get back into acting. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's one of it. Sets are wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> definitely that. I mean, because it, it relates it relates to acting, but I mean, so much uh, it goes on. 
uh, so particularly, much. particularly in the second act, where you're suddenly, uh, uh, you know, fast forwarding uh, time. Yeah. I mean, you're going yeah. right from, you know, the Palmer House set. And, and those are dangerous. Those mm -hmm. montages are dangerous because you have tiny little spaces for 73 people to maneuver and change exactly. on, on, you know, it's a, matters of seconds they have to change and get back out there and do what they're supposed to do and be in the right place. And if they're not, sets and scenery is moving behind you, going along tracks and doing things. If you step in the wrong place, it's dangerous. Well, it's dangerous, <laughs> and I imagine it does... It doesn't help one's concentration as an actress. No. Uh, well, the first three know. weeks that we were, you know, doing the text and stuff, we were just all thinking about the scenery, and we were noticing that everything that comes out on stage is literally flown backstage. Right. Everything. Uh, the, the, right. the, the walls, the car, mm -hmm. all the sets, all the furniture the on the set. Too, the, the car is flown, too. Yeah. The car is flown. The car is flown. It's hanging backstage. Well. When, did, yes. when did you first work with those 72 pieces of scenery? Well, um, well, some of them were, were uh, flown in Toronto. So we had some experience as we did it for a year in Toronto, but everything had to be flown at the Gershwin because while it's a huge house, we have a smaller backstage area at the Gershwin than we had in Toronto. Yeah. You know, bringing up what Brendan brought up uh, earlier about uh, the cinematography effect, uh, it's, it's all an animated now, you know, and I'm thinking that, I mean, this is my first uh, musical as well as <laughs> Rosemary's, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm really in awe of, of, of the technology you know, you push a button on that computer, and that's that set amazing. is going to move regardless. Yeah. That's right. It moves so, regardless of who's yeah, in the, the way. The best thing to do, <laughs> if you're in the way, the best thing to do is hop Jump on and out hold, of the way. Yeah. Hold yeah. on. There you because have it. You, yeah. Because if you try to move out of the way, you're going to be in the way of another piece of that's set moving too. in that spot. Yeah. It's amazing. Yes. Well, I think it's about, to, to go back to what you said, you were interested in talking about acting. I think what we're talking about now is, is one added layer of difficulty for actors. Having the concentration on your acting while all of this is going around. That's right. And nobody ever had to do that in opera, for example, with changes. You know, all anybody used to do in the audience was stand up there and belt it out, you know, motionless, these two great creatures. But nowadays, actors have to pretend, as I say, they have to be inside the character, they have to be acrobats, they That's have right. to be yeah. doing all these things. And then the mercilessness of electronics, which is not a second out, oh, yeah. you know, That's and the right. spot going on it's and not, not going on, you have to be in it. So oh, as well yeah. as, as uh, choreography or, or staging on in front, stage. on stages, you have it backstage, you have it backstage as well. Well, now, yeah. tell us about Carousel, for example. Well, it's yeah, exactly that's a, the same exactly. thing. That's a, the, this whole stage turns, starts at a, at a mill, and within the whole uh, duration of the Carousel Waltz turns into a carousel. Yeah. But they have to show us the entire story of how we get there. So first we're at a mill with a huge clock, and then the whole time happening, we've got a round table or a turntable spinning. So we start with the mill, and then all of a sudden we've got our, our clothes flying in that we have to pick. And if you don't pick up your clothes in time, your clothes fly out. And, so you have <laughs> and that has happened before, where your clothes fly out. Like, Wait a minute! You're like, well, well, let me make this work. Let me make this work without my costume. <laughs> so you've got that to worry about. And then as you know, as as the story progresses, we go to the boat yards to pick up the boys. And then all of a sudden we've got boats flying on stage. And then all of a sudden we've got a carousel ticket booth. Meanwhile, we're dancing, running around, and the turntable is running. And then all of a sudden ticket booths come on. Then like certain rides at the carousel come on. And then all the while horses are coming on while you're trying to buy cotton candy, while you're looking at Uncle Sam who's on stilts. And then all of a sudden this airplane hanger comes down and then there's a carousel. And if you are not, if you are on that little star in the middle section as the airplane hanger comes down, 
you know, you'll, you'll get your little rest in peace sign right there. <laughs> yeah, right. What's happening here with all that? Exactly. Well, there's, there's a ton happening. Uh, what's usually happening is you're trying so hard to stay within the character. And at the same time where it's, it's difficult, you know, because you've got it and you're worried about your life, it's also inspirational because you really are, you know, you really feel like you're at a carousel or really yeah. are in the rain or really yeah. are on a boat. Mm -hmm. And that's what actually, you know, in a good way helps you know, with your character, and, and it helps yeah. to keep you in the moment, even though at the same time you're thinking, okay, I hope I'm not on that star so this thing doesn't come down, you know, carousel, dead carry, you know, at the same time. But then, but, and then at the end of the carousel, when that flies out, we've got a huge, the, the next scene change is happening, so there's a huge hill coming downstage, what we call the big green turtle coming downstage, and you're sitting there fighting with Mrs. Mullen, trying to run off stage while there's this turtle coming down, and usually what's happening at that point is we're going, all right, we're okay, we're okay, okay, run, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, a, it's quite a dichotomy of what goes on. Well, now, now also, uh, Charlotte, you have a certain amount of this, too, because of, as, as Lola, you have all kinds of magic going on around you. The main you. problem with my show, well, the same thing, I mean, everything is flown, everything, it's amazing, it's just amazing how it works. Um, but there are like tons of tracks on the stage, right. and my heels, I'm constantly walking in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like throughout the whole show, I'm falling in these tracks, <laughs> and it is, I can't believe that I, we dance on that stage. Mm -hmm. It amazes me. I'm like, when I first went on, I was like, how am I going to dance on this? I mean, it's just holes everywhere. But you do. You do. Well, then you have all the, all the magic that goes with it. And, and, and of course, and then oh, you've also right. played uh, Peter Pan, too, so you actually have flown yourself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of stories with that one. <laughs> well? Yeah. Well, they're just the famous banging into the walls or, or not flying, which is really the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Up you go. No, you don't. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really lovely. But, yeah. you, really, you really love the people that fly you. You buy them presents. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make sure they treat you very well. In the old days, uh, the, well, all this flying of, 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 of the sets and everything was all done with sandbags. Now, what is backstage that makes it possible to fly all this stuff? Steel drums and cables? Well, and all no, there are cables that are, there. I don't know, I can't really, I've looked at them and to step over them. Yeah. You have to, yeah. you have to right. really, it's a big you know. Deal to step up oh, yes. They're electronically flown, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, so they push a button and they're somehow mm -hmm. just hoisted up on a drums, turn. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it depends on which stage. Because we have one. we have people pulling ours. Right. Some, yeah. of ours are pulled. Pulled. Some of ours are pulled too. Right, yeah. right. Half and half, I would say. Mm -hmm. But see, that's another thing is that there are there's the crew of about what 35 now, right? A lot. Yeah, and so you're running into them as well, and and, and there's always these this little dialogue. Of, of, you know, what's going and on you know, backstage as because, you're going to your next uh, and spot. And because of the time that our production takes place and we wear these long gowns, you know, with the trains yeah. on them, <laughs> and somebody's always stepping on your, your tail. We call them our tails. I'm guilty. And you'll be walking, trying to get on it. Somebody will be on your yeah. skirt. You'll say, could you get off my nice. dress so I can make my entrance? <laughs> Let's get this into auditioning. When you audition, oh. were you told that you're going to have to work with all these people? Were you told that you're going to have to work with all this equipment and everything that has happened? Is that part now of the auditioning process and questioning that goes on? No. Not really, no. no. So no. if you, if you are an, a performer, if you are an actor, an actress, you has nothing to do whether there's only two people on the set and one stage and if uh, that could ever happen. No. Uh, or... 75 stages. No, you have no idea when you go to these auditions what it's really going to be like when you get either in those rehearsals or out on that stage. Yeah. 
There's no way to know until you do it, unless you've done a lot of shows before. In my case, I had done some theater before, but and actually I had done showboat before, but not on this scale. Into what she's done, Brendan? Hmm. Let's talk about what you've done before. Oh, okay. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I started so long ago, you don't want to hear about that. I started, <laughs> <laughs> believe me, I started right Where did you right start? In. Did you study? I started, well, no, not at first. I started in Detroit when I was about five years old. I started writing music and playing piano. And uh, I had had no formal training. So then a few at years... Five, you'd had no formal training. That's amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just one of those things. But so then my mother began uh, taking me around to all the nightclubs and stuff in Detroit. And I would go out on stage and tell the band what to play, even though I had never studied music. I didn't know what key or anything to tell them. I'd just sit at the piano and say, okay, play it like this. <laughs> and uh, I would do this little act with my mother as my chaperone. And then when I was about 14, I got my first hit record in Detroit. And then uh, left Detroit, went to L.A. You would think I would come to New York to do theater from Detroit. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know about that. I had a sister. I had a sister that was living in L.A., and she was trying to get into films. So that's where I ended up going to L.A., and I did, in fact, get into films shortly thereafter. How, I did my first by audition? Or? It was a fluke. It was a fluke. I had signed with a modeling agency because a friend had suggested that I could do modeling because I was really struggling in L.A. I mean, I, we weren't eating too good. So this friend said, well, why don't you try to sign with this big Nina Blanchard modeling agency? So I went there, and she signed me up, but I wasn't getting any work. So one of the agents there at her agency was assigned to try, trying to get models work who they thought might have some acting ability. So they, they casted the movie Sparkle. And this agent called me and he said, I think you'd be perfect in this movie. Honey, if you could just sing, do you think you can sing a song? And he didn't know I had been doing this since I was five. And I said, sure. So I ended up going on the audition for Sparkle. I played for myself. I sat at the piano, played for Sam Osteen, who was the director, who's actually a brilliant editor. And uh, I got it. I got it. And that was it. the beginning of my, my professional career. So you never had any really formal training, or you just, except by, well, by then, doing, right? Then did I did. No, actually, I did. After I did my first few films, uh, I was, thank God, it was a blessing. I was coaxed into starting classes with a wonderful voice teacher in L.A., Deanie Clark. And at first, I, I really, I didn't get it. I didn't understand. Now, what can this guy teach me about singing? I've been singing since I was a little girl. You know, what could he possibly teach me? Then, of course, after about two classes, I realized that there was a whole world that I had no idea mm -hmm. about in terms of singing and technique. And, and I was raised on Motown, which is not to put that down. It's a wonderful uh, part of, of, of our history. But it certainly has nothing to do with uh, Sinatra and Judy Garland and Ethel, Ethel Waters and Billie Holiday and Dinah Washington. Mm -hmm. And he taught me about them. And those are the real singers. I think that's interesting to go along to find out the background of each one. I want also, Audran, uh, about how you are a recent graduate of Juilliard, mm -hmm. so you have had the, the, the training. The, yes. Uh, and, and how did you, well, you get into Carousel? Did, did, were you involved with the London production? Oh, no, not at all. Actually, I, I went to Juilliard on a fluke, actually. I, I was into musical theater. Um, from the time I was about nine, I was doing a little Mickey Mouse Club back in Fresno, California, where Mickey's from as well. And um, I did a lot of shows at a musical theater there. And uh, uh, I decided I wanted to be an actress, and a musical theater actress. 
And my voice teacher at the time, I was kind of studying, and, and he would say, sing this aria. And I'd be like, no, I'm going to belt, you know, and I was always trying to belt everything yeah. out. And so, yeah. so he said, come on, just wanna, why don't you try an audition for Juilliard just to see what it's like, just to see what the operatic program would be like. And I said, okay, it'll be a nice trip to New York, and, and you know, my mom will pay for it. Cool, I'll do it. So I, <laughs> I went ahead, and I, I auditioned, and I sang... Uh, a soprano aria, and I told them I was a mezzo-soprano, and I did some optional ending, just things you're not supposed to do at all in classical music, and they laughed at me at my audition. And then they asked me, they said, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 17. And they just laughed again, and I thought, well, I blew this, you know? And then they called me and accepted me. I thought, well, it's just, you know, to have some, like, comic relief at school. <laughs> I, swear, I swear that's what I thought it was. It's just, there's no reason. So I studied opera, but the whole time I was there, I kept missing... I kept missing musical theater a lot and, and fighting with my teachers the whole four years I was there. So every once in a while I'd sneak away and I did an industrial and then I snuck away and I left school for six months and I did the Secret Garden tour. And that's how I got my agent. And then um, after I graduated from school, I went out on the road again with Secret Garden uh, last May and uh, a year ago last May. And then uh, I got the call to come in and audition for Carousel and I auditioned six times after fainting at my final callback, which I also fainted when I auditioned for Showboat. <laughs> I'm really good at that. Oh, I fainted. I said, darling Mr. Snow. Boom. And I fainted. <laughs> I sang Bill for Showboat audition. Right, right. And I said, he's just my bang. I fainted for that. Oh, and then my, my sophomore <laughs> recital, I finished. I always finish my numbers. That's good. I finished the last, these two beautiful Margaret Bond songs. I, I remember thinking, oh, I got through these songs. I hate opera, but I got through these songs. And I finished the last note, and then I heard someone go, somebody catch her. And I thought, what's happening? And it was me. Oh, oh my goodness. That's amazing. When you say you were fighting all those four years, what were you fighting? I was fighting the operatic sound. I was fighting really giving my voice over completely to opera. I had a, you know, my, all of my aunts sing, and my faux uncle Mickey over there was a singer who I grew up listening to. And so I, I uh, had this, you know, kind of... Yeah, a spiritual sound. I had a I had a musical theater sound going, and I opera was something that just seemed really foreign to me, and I just didn't want to give up the sound I was raised with. Mm -hmm. But I did end up compromising and, and ending up with a technique which helps you to survive. Well, exactly, and, and that's what I wanted to, to get at a little bit is is, is your uh, view of the of the difference uh, of, of of dealing with opera, not mm -hmm. only obviously vocally, which we know about, but acting. I mean, you're, acting. you're doing a whole different ball game there too. Well. Um, I think, for me anyway, and the thing that I got into trouble with a lot at Juilliard is when you're dealing with opera, your first concern is the voice, mm -hmm. and your first concern is the technique and the purity of the sound and the beauty of the notes and the, and the breathing and all that stuff. <coughs> Acting is secondary. You know, you're thinking, okay, I, I have to have the right kind of technique, and then I think, oh, and I'm sad. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's really, I think, very, uh, it's, it's not three-dimensional. I think at all as far as and see my training was the opposite my teacher stressed <coughs> acting he right. said if you are a good actress when you sing uh -huh. you'll be a great singer yeah and I think that's the, that's that there lies difference. the difference right yeah. there uh, I want to uh, I it's it's difficult I must say a little personal illusion uh, uh, you play Carrie this is Charlotte but Charlotte's mother is Carrie so I almost said Carrie but anyway this, so, but uh, <laughs> that's just a, an aside uh, but you come from a, a theatrical background Yes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so how did you, uh, I mean, you grew up with it, coming uh, with your father being a major dancer. And, right. Um, 
why didn't you go into selling insurance and having <laughs> so much? You, you, you knew more. You knew better. I knew better. Oh, absolutely. Well, I grew up with a very... I, my father was in... The, my, both my parents were in the ballet world. So I grew up in the ballet world. And I grew up in New York City. Um, so, of course, you want to go into the arts. I mean, because you you're surrounded by artists. And, uh, but I never wanted to be in the ballet. I always wanted to sing. And I know exactly what you mean about the opera. Because I was a big Judy Garland, Barbra Streisand fan. And I remember studying voice, and I would never want that sound. And I would fight it and fight it. I swear, and only the last year have I given in. <laughs> but it's something, it's something that, you know, you think that you have an image of what you want your voice to be, you know. Which is, and it's totally wrong to train that way. You, opera is really the base, you know. Well, it's, it's, it's like ballet is the technique, so you can exactly. dance, do whatever kind of dance you want. You need that firm technique. And I got the, and the ballet, I started at eight years old. And um, I'm so glad that I did because it's the basic training. And, it, and I could probably dance till I'm, you know, 50 years old. God, That's no. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> Maybe 35. <laughs> no, but I mean, because of that training, you learn how to keep yourself in shape. You learn how to keep yourself technically trained so you can kick your legs for a long time. Did you then train for the theater when you decided you wanted to I was um, 8 till about 14, ballet, ballet. Right. And the only reason why was because I wanted to do the Nutcracker Suite and all the little kitty ballets um, with New York City Ballet. So I just, and as soon as I outgrew them, I went, I don't want to do this. I want to sing. I want to dance. I want to do jazz. Like Bob Fosse was a huge, I mean, I went and saw dance and I went, this is what I want to do. So it's, so then I just started taking jazz and singing and really pursuing what I wanted at an early age. I always knew what I wanted. What was the first theater that you did? Um, besides Nutcracker and all that. Mm -hmm. No, I met um, As a little that. child. Um, 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 gosh, you know what? I'm not sure. I guess I did a couple showcases in the city. Mm -hmm. um, which were musicals like Toulouse-Lautrec and little things like that, and dancing. And, and then when I was 18 years old, I did Surf Light. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 which I made $30 a week, and you did 12 shows in 12 weeks. <laughs> and I lived in a room, you know, a little room with three girls, you know, and it was a great experience. I learned so much. I mean, you, you rehearse one show during the week, and you're performing at night the other show. So you, you don't have a day off for the whole summer. So, um, so that was really my first experience. And then from there, I started to get shows and stuff and, and work. But um, I'm awfully glad you did. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a really terrible experience of having to live like that and work like that. Afterward, you always have, oh, it was a wonderful experience, <laughs> no matter what. But during it, like I look at my journal, yeah, yeah. I hate this, I'm miserable, uh, you know. <laughs> no, but. Now, Rosemary, everybody seems to have started five, six, seven. Uh, how early on did you start? Well, uh, the first performance I remember giving, I was four. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I played the queen in the Dance of the Seven Veils. And my sister was Salome, and she was a little bit older than I was, and she, just as the last curtain was supposed to, well, the last veil, was, they were actually curtains, but as the last veil was supposed to fall up, the record said, and the door opened, and the queen came walking in, and that was my cue. And I remember the power of walking onto that little stage. It was in our living room, I think. And <laughs> although it was a professional performance because my sister had invited all the neighbors and they had to pay to come and see <laughs> <laughs> 
And I remember hearing my cue and walking across the stage, and then my sister taught me how to kick my train and then walk back again. And I never underrate a, a non-speaking role because it was total silence while I did this. Yeah. And I thought, I like that. That feels good. I'd, I'd rather be here than... Sorry, my coughing in my, into my mic. I'd rather be here than, than there. I think that was the first taste of it. And it is an addiction. You get sort of addicted to that feeling. And then I acted, looking back, I used to do strangest things. I remember living with my grandmother, my great aunt, who were great animal lovers. And um, I don't know how the idea came up, but I decided that I would dress up as a grown-up. I was 11 and pretend to come and report a case of, not cruelty to a dog, but that a dog that was tied up all the time. And I knew that would get my grandmother and great aunt's attention. So I wore my mother's little fur piece and a little hat and high heel shoes. And I went round to the front door, which nobody ever used, and I rang the bell. And um, they opened the door, and I just sort of stood there. I wasn't at all frightened. I simply said I wanted to come and report a case of cruelty. And they invited me in, and I sat there. And they asked me where the dog was, and I invented all this right off the top of my head. And then I heard myself saying, and my husband says. <laughs> <laughs> and I suddenly saw my great aunt look at my, my left hand. And I realized I wasn't wearing a wedding ring. So I thought, oh, I've blown that. Anyway, they sat and listened to me, and finally they said, thank you very much. And I got up and walked out the front door, and I thought, I made it. And I did. They did not know who I was. Oh, you're mm. kidding. Oh, they wow. really did not know. So it is all auto-suggestion. It is simply the power. Mm. It is very strange. It's that a sort is of amazing. Of, yeah. yeah. You should have gone into playwriting as well. Like. Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you have. But that's yeah. very important. Yeah. What is that power, Rose? I don't know. It, it's simply believing. It's like children play Let's Pretend. And if you have enough belief in what you're doing, other people will believe you. That's right. It's a sort of mystical thing. I know it That's sounds right. silly, but... And then another so time cool. I dressed up as a fortune teller, and, um, and people, because we were having a fete or something, a little village thing, and I dressed up with a veil and looked like a sort of gypsy fortune teller, and nobody knew it was me, and they started coming in, and I had to sort of invent fortunes and things. And gradually I got more and more frightened because I began to know too much about the people that were coming to see me. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman who I knew, we knew, was having an affair with someone else, and she came and asked me what was going to happen. And I thought, this, this is getting very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you were doing I was 16. And then what happened after that? Did you then go to the theater? Did and then I did school? one more of those little sort of bizarre things. Um, <laughs> it, it was in the time where, where there was very little home help and my sister, and I was living with my sister, helping her look after her two little children, and the woman in the flat downstairs had three little children and she was desperate for some help. So we plotted this scheme that I would go and make myself available for the job. So I got myself all dressed up with a little turban and things and I, she interviewed me. <laughs> And I only lived upstairs. <laughs> and she suddenly asked me my name, which I hadn't prepared to sort of send me. And, and Eliza Huggins came out, which <laughs> should have given me away because it's so close to Eliza Higgins. You know. but, uh, <laughs> that didn't seem to give away the show. And, and, and the, it turned back on me afterwards because I left. And she was so excited because she said, what will you do? I said, I'll do anything. You know, I do ovens, I'll clean windows. You know, I love children, I'll do all the washing. And she thought that I was an answer to her prayer. And then, of course, we told her the next day that it was me. And she was so angry that she then put an advertisement in the paper. 
with my address saying oh. that I would be a home help and I would tell you it's with sacks and letters but all I bring that up is that that is what acting really is and in spite of all the scenery and everything going wrong if you can keep that belief that you are who you are then it's but also you have to bring something to it you you had a power within yourself that you felt oh, I think that it's, could it's, be it's an instinctive thing I think it's um I don't know that it can be taught. I think it's something that... Did you go on? Were you ever, did you ever go into teaching? Did you ever have anybody teach you? Did you ever try well, to teach Well, not, not till afterwards, because I, I was going to be a nurse. I, I really wanted to be a nurse, and sometimes I regret that I wasn't. Um, but I was ambitious, and I thought, if I'm a nurse, I'll end up as the matron of a hospital. I'll be an administrator, and I don't want to do that. I want the hands-on, one-to-one relationship and I don't want to push a pen behind a desk and then I thought I'd be a physiotherapist because I thought you can't be a physiotherapist behind a desk but the training was too expensive and I had no money and uh, then it was my sister nudged me and said on, why don't you be an actress you're always acting at home why don't you make a living of it so uh, that's sort of I approached the little local stock company and said before I waste any time and money on an academical training could you tell me if I have any talent and the local director sort of, like he said, come to a rehearsal and they were just breaking and I saw these actors leaving the stage and they were like the gods and goddesses on Mount Olympus. <laughs> and then we sat in the stores and he opened the play that they were currently doing. It was a little weekly rep. And he said, well, let's start reading. And so I read a bit and he said, well, I think that's okay. I'll, if I have something for you, I'll, I'll let you know. So that's how it happened. Well, did you have any formal training after that? Or? Yes, I did. I, I, I went from one job to another, and uh, then I realized that I couldn't... Well, it's a very long, boring story. You don't really well, want we'll to hear it. Well, we'll shorten it. I'll try and shorten it. But at the end of this... <laughs> it, I was in a, a rather tatty weekly, twice-nightly weekly rep, and at the end of the season, they decided to do Hamlet. And I thought, well, maybe I might get to play Ophelia if I'm lucky. I'd never done any Shakespeare. But unfortunately, I, w I was just cast as the player queen, who's usually played as a boy, and then she becomes the queen in the play. And they imported a young actress from drama school who just graduated from drama school in London to play Ophelia. So I thought, aha, so that way runs the game. And I thought the only way to take my next step forward is to try and get into a drama school. So mm -hmm. then I applied and... Did you go to Lambda, Rada? I, I got into Rada mm -hmm. and just spent a year there because I ran out of money and had to leave and get another job and then I got a scholarship and went back. And, but I, I did have a year of voice training, which was a great help. So that, along with your power, was able to bring you where you are today? <laughs> I, I don't know, but one what thing, about you know, yourself? one step what about you? What's your background? Oh, I started yeah. out... Uh, you have to have yeah. been three because it's been going five, four... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, actually... Uh, our whole family, you know, we were always singing and, and, and entertaining each other around. There were seven of us at, at home, uh, and, um, and my mom and dad. And it was a lot of fun because we used to uh, embarrass my mom by going out in the neighborhood and just, you know, performing like, right on the corner, you know, no matter what uh, where, it was. Where, where, where's home? Fresno, California. Okay. And, you know, right, <laughs> um, right on the corner. And um, she would be so embarrassed that she would sneak out, the out of the house, behind one of the bushes in the houses. Come here! <laughs> come here! <laughs> I said, come here! And we, we're just oblivious, and we're going along, going, la cucaracha, or whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, seven of us lined up just doing this in, in a chain, you know. Uh, and, 
the, the, the funny thing is, is that people would, would be either drive by and slow down and look, and some would stop and watch and started laughing and then you know, applauding and whatever. And out of all seven of us, I'm the only one that kind of like took it seriously. Mm -hmm. And uh, I agree with Rosemary. There's some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know whether it's, it's vivid imagination or, 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 or just the innate ability to, to internalize something that you really, really want. You know, and you and you turn it around and become what that is. It's 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 something that's hard to explain. It really is. It could be um, predestined. It could be it, past lives. Yes, it could, be, you know. it could be anything. You know, <laughs> but the whole point is 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 to is to take that and be in your own little world, um, and and have that become reality within yourself. You know, then I suppose uh, the people who are watching end up saying, "Oh, well, who are you? Or what is this?" You know. But um, not to uh, you know, labor that uh, uh, too much. The, the fact is that when I, uh, from that moment on, <laughs> um, I really wasn't really interested in, in just the fact of, of going into acting or singing or anything. It was just something that came natural and we had a good time at. And also, in, and also in church, um, a lot in church. But are there singing, is there singing in your family? Did your father and mother have great voices? Uh, they both have very good voices. Yes, they do. In fact, my mother was, um, uh, she had a... a well, now, wait a minute. Uh, let me, are you from Fresno, too? That yes, I and I. With my right. Okay, then I picked yeah. up the Uncle Mickey, but I was <laughs> not sure. From the church, when you, after the church, where did you go? Singing in the church is one thing, but then what did Yeah, um, from, from that point on, it was going into, uh, um, I wanted to, like, I was looking in the, doing ath athletic stuff, you know, and playing uh, football, but I turned the football in and, and traded that in for, for uh, music, mainly because of the scheduling <clears throat> and the fact that you don't get hurt in singing as much. <laughs> <laughs> except by the With, scenery. Except yeah. for the, yeah, the right. flying set, you know. Depending on the show. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, it's, it, was, um, it was something that was, I guess, was an external thing. You know, my family as well as uh, outside, you know, people, extended community, kept saying, "Yeah, why don't you sing? Do this, do that." And there came, you know, the the need to do this. But um, immediately went right into training. Um, uh, fortunately, had a had a high school teacher who taught me the voice at 7:15 in the morning, hmm. at, from the age of 15 on up. No preparation and, for acting. Yeah, right. 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 No, no, no. In fact, I, I haven't had any. Um, uh, Formal acting, acting training. Yes. When did your um, extraordinary timbre of your voice develop? That would have to be an adolescence. Yeah, it, I would say at an early but age. But you were singing when you were very 16. young. Yes. Um, the quality of the voice is, was something that, that that was very unique on, it, on unto itself. When you said you've not had any formal training in acting. Right, I hadn't. No. Then what what do you bring into acting? Um, uh, basically, what uh, Rosemary was saying. Um, but you need a discipline. You need um, something that you have to call upon. Yes, that yes. The scenery falls on you to know what happens. Right. You know, it, it all, it all happened natural. Come experience. Yeah. yeah. I really well, do. Right. You yeah. find your own discipline and your what own What is technique. your experience in, in that? Well, the experience. Um, um, let, let me just you know. All right. Fin <laughs> finish this train of thought. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, it's because um, I, I wanted to get into the fact about opera. Uh, because as a kid, I was an oddball. What I would do, I, we had um, uh, a singing group, you know, that I that I had formed, and we called ourselves uh, 
uh, what was it? Not the variation. Something in twelve thirty-three because that was a time it, it was when we finally got tired of trying to think of a name. You know? <laughs> oh, let's see. Oh, oh. So and so we got together and we would imitate and do all the different Motown sounds and all that. This is through high school, um, outside of being in church, of course. <laughs> but uh, off on the side, I would sneak to the library and get out uh, and rent um, or you know take out um, opera. And for some reason, it, the sound, I was just into the sound of the voice uh-huh. or into what it can do. Uh-huh. And, and the, the, uh, the enormity or the, you know, the extent of one, what the voice can do from one end to the other. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, my first uh, opera uh, voice that I heard was Leonard Warren you know, mm-hmm. doing Macbeth. And I just, I just sat and cried. For some reason, I just sat and cried. I don't know why. All right, but I wouldn't let my friends know this, of course. <laughs> what are you doing, man? Come on. You know. So um, um, with that, I just began to get totally into the voice and nurturing and, and, and training and trying to mimic anything I heard mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, that Which kind is of acting. Yeah, which is, I suppose, yes. Sure, yes. And I think that's where my training came from. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, um, vocally as well as, as a singer, um, I trained uh, going through college at uh, Chapman University. Uh, and also taking uh, numerous uh, um, lessons from either Giorgio uh, Tozzi thereafter, Giorgio Tozzi, uh, Vladimir Shustrov, and um, um, Maestro uh, Eduardo Müller. I mean, you just begin to just go wherever you need to nurture um, that that thing. I call it a fix. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it that that you need to to uh, sustain yourself internally? You know, regardless of what's going on around you. What about the acting side? Where did, did you the acting side? That? Yeah, in that, school? yeah, that just no, not in school. It, it just just li- a little bit off and on. Okay, <laughs> um, one of the uh, professors in school, uh, you know, just because of the voice itself and the naturalness uh, that I just seemed to have, um, just pushed me into the the Shakespearean, uh, uh, you know, repertoire, and we did some, and I I really really loved it because then. It tapped on something that that was already there, you know that that imaginary something that was already there that needed to come out. And from uh, on that, I, I just you know did a lot of it at home, a lot of home. Your study. great your great predecessor Paul Robeson didn't give up football. He was also that's right. I was, I was just going to bring right, up Robeson right. and Cornell, uh, and, and uh, he was a hero as an athlete. And then mm-hmm. and then he Rutgers. learned acting out of singing because he was people was wanted right. him to be exactly. a, an actor. Mm-hmm. After after he uh, received his uh, or had you yeah. listened law, or law degree? Had you listened or seen anything of Paul Robeson in Showboat? Oh yes, oh yes, uh-huh. yes, quite a bit. Yes. And, and did, uh, how did you feel about it? Did it influence you? Or well, did you knowing, say knowing the history of, of uh, Paul Robeson and, and what he stood for um, in as far as uh, the humanitarian um, 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 side of what he feels mankind should be about, the fairness for all peoples. I mean, he was a champion for oppressed peoples all over the world, mm-hmm. spoke 19 different languages and all this. I mean, that in itself was, was extremely, you know, awesome to me. And I thought, wow, this is, this is more than I can, you know, even begin to imagine. And uh, being a Phi Beta Kappa scholar and an All-American uh, athlete uh, as well, um, he, to me, was like a, a Renaissance man ahead of his time, mm-hmm. you know, um, just a champion and a hero. It was a for heartbreaking life. Oh, it was yes. a heartbreaking what about, life. What about his performance in Showboat? When, when did that 
did that influence you, bother you, or it didn't bother or inspire me. you? Yeah, it inspired me. Uh, mm -hmm. I have to just to really, really pinpoint that when I first uh, my teacher in high school, his name was Costu, uh, Dimitri Costu, oh, and teacher. oh, you're kidding! Too. We didn't even get that far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My course, oh my so goodness! Teacher, that's oh. Wow. <laughs> that's a small world. <laughs> wow! It is. It is. Um, no, this isn't planned, is it? <laughs> wow! Um, the first one of the first songs after I think it was Non Pian Dry, and then uh, there was uh, a few art songs from Haydn and, and uh, Purcell and all. He brought up Old Man River, and at the age of fifteen, I didn't know what the words meant. And I was like, what is this all about? And I took it to my father and said, you know, Dad, what is this? Well, son, and he explained to me, you know, why they had written in dialect, you know. Um, and I said, well, why don't they just say it the way it is? Because we don't speak this way. You know, in our house, we didn't speak that way. And that was my um, um, experience uh, of what, you know, a black life is all about, you know, the, the Afro-American family. And uh, so I refused to learn it. Mm -hmm. And in, in doing so, of course, uh, Dimitri realized this about maybe the third or fourth lesson. He says, well, how's, how's Old Man River? You want to you look at it and take... And I said, uh, oh, yeah, I left it at home. And he kept, you know, knowing that being a, a pianist himself, he sat down. He says, well, look, let's just, I know it by heart. Let's just try it. And I said, oh, no. And I started to sing it. The, the thing I did love about it was that melodically it, how low it went. Of course, in those days I did it in the key of C. And um, uh, it, was, it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had musically. Although lyrically, it was hard to take. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I understand why uh, now I do. Um, but back then, being a 15-year-old, you, you just kind of like uh, want to push it away and not, not really identify with it as much. I, I want to pick up, if I may, too, on, on the influence, because you talk about Robeson, and of course, that is such an uh, overarching and powerful influence on, on people. Yes. <clears throat> um, uh, but uh, you, you did know about that, and I want to go move it along to, to other influences. Now, Lynette, we were talking about having seen the uh, two films of Showboat, mm -hmm. one with Ava Gardner and one with Ava Gardner. With Helen, Helen Morgan. Mm -hmm. And did that have an influence on you? No. None at all? <laughs> and not even no. in the reverse? Oh, well... Something you didn't want to do? Maybe in the reverse. Okay. Maybe in the reverse. I actually felt that the first movie that they made of Showboat was very... Uh, I didn't like the way they portrayed black people in the film at all. And I wasn't too crazy about the way... Actually, it was probably no. 30s. Okay, the the stage version was 27, that's what I said earlier, yeah, but I'm sure it was 30s. 36 was the right. film. Yeah. She did on stage in 27, though, Helen Morgan. Um, and the second version as well, I found things that I didn't like about the portrayal of the black folks in it. So I was actually... And then, you know, I did a production in 83 for the Houston Grand Opera, and um, there were things that I was adamant about not seeing done in this production. Such as? Uh, like... Niggers all work on the Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Your basic yeah, right. N word. Yeah, right. <laughs> Who made the decision on that? Hal. Hal made the decision. Hal did. Yeah. And I was Hal, very pleased to you? see. Yeah, he, he. But he. He. It was interesting that he would even look at the actors and ask if how do we feel about it because he did individually. Oh, yeah. he came. At which point did, did, did he ask this of you? Well, he had told me very early on when I had my first meeting with he and Garth about doing the show. 
that he wanted to change all the stereotypical uh, yes. versions and mm -hmm. characters mm -hmm. of, of our show, but he didn't want any of that stereotypical stuff in there or anything that would be in any way offensive mm -hmm. to people of color. There's a reason behind that, though. Uh, if you look at it, you know, historically speaking, um, the, uh, the Afro-Americans had a really rough time on the stage, mm -hmm. okay, back then. Yeah. Uh, and so if you're looking at a, a piece written in the 1927 that is about uh, the 1880s coming through uh, 40 years, um, you have to kind of be almost um, um, authentic as to what, where that is coming from. Right. For well, he that, didn't want to rewrite history. He didn't want to rewrite history. Right, exactly. Showboat is what it is. Mm -hmm. And there are some things that are very disturbing about the relationship between the way white folks were treated at that time as opposed to the way black folks are treated. Mm -hmm. And there still are some disturbing things in 1994 mm -hmm. about that. Um, so he didn't want to rewrite history. It has to remain true to the fact that, yes, black people, and especially with regard to my character, Julie, or to Joe, for instance, mm -hmm. um, Julie's choices in those days, she was a very fair-skinned black woman. Her only uh, option was to either say she was black and be a slave mm -hmm. or lie and say she was white. Mm -hmm. um, I find that very disturbing. But uh, these are the classics, though. Showboat is a classic, yes. and you do not rewrite the classic That's right. anymore. That's right. Uh, in, in, in England, if, if uh, Dickens, uh, to show the cruelty of people the, right. uh, to the English people and to... You don't say, well, that's not so, because right. we must, if we're going to do a Dickens play, let's change it, because it's changed mm -hmm. now. You have to, I think, remain true. Showboat was a very old-fashioned play to begin with. Uh, actually, the plot yeah. of Showboat, taken from a novel by Edna we knew nothing about history. She was a popular novel. Yeah. So in 1925, it was already a totally synthetic image with a lot of stereotype mm -hmm. in it based on 19th century melodramas, That's including right. one Dion Boussy called the, the mm -hmm. Octoroon, yes. and half a dozen yes. other plays. So they were acting out uh, um, out of a tradition well, I think it, well over 100 uh, years old. That's right. Right. In, in order to sell, How do you, you deal know. with classics in England, though? You, you've done them, and, and, and you change them in order to... Well, the Inspector Calls has completely changed from the original. I'd like to know more about that. I couldn't even recognize it when I saw it, because I'd seen the original, of course. Change how? Well, it's supposed to be all take place around a dining room table. It, it all takes place on an engagement party when the daughter of the house is getting engaged to a very smart young man. And it all takes around the place around the dining room table and the maid comes in and opens the door from time to time and says, the inspector's here and goes out again. And that's usually played in, in stock by an 18-year-old. And I think the actress playing it in London is 90. <laughs> and she's on stage from the beginning of the play to the end, and Stephen has made her an extremely important character. But usually she's this ASM who opens the door, says, the inspector's here, and then goes and puts on the record and makes the, you know, makes the sound or goes and makes the tea or something. But um, Stephen, the oh, the, the whole point changed. of the play has changed. Well, well, but it's the whole point of the play really, it was is, a, is a moral point as well. Yes, it's a, and that's why it's a one. I love being in this play, and I suppose it satisfies my feeling of <laughs> of not being a nurse somehow because I. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see it in, in London when it was done there? I did, I did, and I just couldn't believe when I was asked to do it here that I would have the fortune to play in it. Yeah. But I think it's a wonderful play. It has a moral. And um, 
you know, it is uplifting. It's not just some flighty bit of nonsense, which I thought acting... I, I wanted to act, but I didn't want to be an actress because I thought actresses were flighty and inconsequential people mm -hmm. and I really ought to do something more with my life. But a play like this, you feel it is worthwhile because the message is... You know, we're not alone. We, we, we must care for each other. Yeah. And um, don't you feel yes. that very in a sense... very exciting to tell that story. Don't yeah. you feel that in a real sense, by being actors and actresses and by uh, being able to address the public in so many ways that mm -hmm. we are, we are, we're blessed with that, those um, opportunities, yeah. that we actually have a very important role to play mm -hmm. in, in changing what's happening socially and in making yeah. contributions. Well, as directly as you would if you were a healer Canada or a nurse. About the well, you know, ironic that, you know, the protest in Canada. Mm -hmm. Did Hal come in your dressing room and tell you about the front page yes. of the Toronto Star? Yes. That it, it, we, this was, uh, it was discovered system. recently. After, after a lot of rigmarole when we first tried to open Showboat, there was protesting by some of the black community saying that they didn't want to see this anymore, that they didn't want to see black people portrayed as slaves, whatever, whatnot. I could respect that opinion, although I didn't understand, none of us did, why they were targeting Showboat. Why were they going to this, this uh, classic and suddenly wanting to like rewrite the history of this classic? As it turns out, that the protest was in fact sponsored and, and uh, manipulated by people in government. In, in Canada who decided that they wanted to fund this protest and get an uproar going for political, their own personal mm. political agendas to do something yeah, to, is, to close yeah, showboat. You know, there's, there's going... Uh, wow. Yeah, there's, how about that? It wasn't the community yeah. at all really speaking up about that. Yeah. It was, you know, Isabel, well, I just, there was something that I wanted to... Isn't it true, though, that, I mean, it would change, okay, and you're, you're, you're speaking of uh, how uh, a great work can change from one era to the... A lot of it has to do with just uh, simple uh, survival or making it palatable for the social um, uh, acceptance no, of the more time. Social and of our time. business. And business. Um, you know, you, because if, if you, you know... I, uh, do, you, do you agree to a certain extent that it has, like, for a carousel to be done well, in the 90s, you have, oh, to, yeah, you have to. You had, you know, you can't just gloss over issues but like white people and oh, yes. Oh, yes. suicide. You have yes. to address them in the 90s. Right. I, I have a theory that uh, there are revivals are classics, mm -hmm. and they should be treated as classics. And so, therefore... At, when you're in England, you don't say, oh, here's that old Noel Coward again. You say, here's Noel Coward's classic, and there might be four of them on the West End at the same time. And he says, oh, just revivals, but they're classics, and they're not changed for our time. And I think the same thing, I think, should be held true for the showboats mm -hmm. and any of the other, and the carousels. You, in the direction of it, mm -hmm. is where you have the new and, and the Just significant so well, yeah. new way of looking at it without changing it. Yes, I mean, because there are the, like generations who come up not knowing what that's all about. And I think that's important. And We're going to have to continue that after this because we now have to take a break. And I'm sorry, this is what happens. I'm the woman that interrupts at all times, and so here I am again. So just stand up and stretch for a minute, and, and uh, please don't go away. It's all just for really one or two minutes, and we're coming right back again. And There are so many questions and so many things that I want to ask about here, so I'm sure you do too. How long is our break? One minute. Oh. <laughs> How far do you want to go?
This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing the American Theater Wing seminars on working in the theater. And these are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in New York City. This seminar is on the performance, and we have a wonderful, wonderful representative group of performers sitting here telling what it is to work in the theater and how they started working in the theater. And Brendan Gill and George White have been conducting a wonderful in-depth co-chairing of this group, and they're going to continue, and hopefully we can have some more answers to how you work in the theater. Uh, there's one thing I'd like to sort of uh, start out, because we talked about... Uh, strangely enough, Phil Bosco having a coal, and it's relevant, because uh, all of the people here uh, also are, uh, well, with the exception of Rosemary, but I think you sing too sometimes, uh, but in the shower, whatever. But, but anyway, the point is that, that uh, we have four of our five panelists who are singers, and they are in shows and in, that demand uh, not just uh, talking a song through, but are, they have to, you have to sing music that is well-known, that is major, what do you do to avoid getting a cold or if you have one? And that's a perfectly <laughs> professional, I mean, you know, and it's a terrifying thing because, uh, you know, if we talk about opera and, and the voice you can't control. If that goes, you, you might be able to fake it from a speaking to, So anyway, I'd like some professional advice and counseling on what I you do. I think you want to see your doctor on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, or, let's go or on to the go. Well, but I, no, but we did talk about you do do things that you have to protect yourself. Well, you know what, people yeah. think that it's very glamorous to be on the stage and to be the actor or to be the singer or the performer, but I'm sure we can all attest to the fact that it is not a glamorous life at all. It's a life of discipline. You have to watch what you eat, what you drink, what exactly. you do at all times. You're always guarding the throat. <laughs> Absolutely. You want to eat something with hot sauce on it? You can't because it'll strip the cords. You can't drink orange juice or grapefruit juice or whatever before you sing. It's, a, it's constant. You can't have a drink. Forget that. No alcohol on the cords before you perform. Um, and mostly, for the most part, after the after performance either right, because then you're dry the next day. So it's a life of discipline. It's like an I athlete's think the life. most important thing you said is you have to have discipline. Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes an actor that discipline that... Uh, you're able to recreate a role over and over again. The discipline ends up becoming a way of life. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. it's not like, I don't think it's, to me it's not a, I don't look at it as being. As a sacrifice? Yeah, a sacrifice or something hard or, or, or difficult to, to I deal do. with. Okay, <laughs> I do. Stage door John Dillon to raging over you with Jim's and yeah. Roses, yeah. that's what you're saying. I mean, it doesn't I'm, take much to keep me happy. <laughs> you can't go to clubs. No. You can't be around people that smoke. No. You can't be in loud places. I mean, it's just I endless. Know. I know. You do have to, it's like becoming a, a, a hypochondriac, you know. Well, yeah, the hard yeah. thing about it is we, I was just saying this as we were commenting on the hour of getting here this morning, that we are indeed vampires. I mean, we kind of live by night, but we can't live like vampires, no. you know? We like, we entertain the vampires, so we're, at, we're on their schedule, but we can't, you know what I'm saying? We, but we can't act like them, because we have to, you know, constantly, you know, be in good voice, and, and, and you know, be using our instrument 100%, you know? And so it's, it's I, I think, think it's a major sacrifice. It is. Because we constantly hear about British actors and the British theater being more disciplined than ours, and the British have more discipline. 
I certainly couldn't ask for more than that. What, what, what would you say, Rosemary? No, no, I was just, just going to quote Sir Lawrence Olivier because he said the most important attribute an actor can have is stamina. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. He said you can have all the talent in the world, but unless you've got stamina, you won't survive the great roles. Well, you he cannot did, he play Coriolanus unless that. you've got stamina. You can't play Otello unless you've got stamina. You can't play any of the great parts. And he was a, he was an athlete. He kept yes, himself exactly. worked like yes. an athlete oh, all yeah. the time, yeah. and and would test himself with falls. He would want to fall farther on yes. purpose as a dying person than anybody <laughs> else had ever fallen. Take you know, Ten feet, twelve feet, whatever it was, and it was it was superb and wonderful. And to me, what was odd was that. Um, he physically fell apart so young. Yeah, he yeah. didn't. He wasn't the wonderful athletic person. That's, that's but he kept he, himself he, even so. He was oh yes, he was always to... art to the very end, and he wouldn't not go on. He wouldn't not be, be playing. Do you find the difference between the British actor and the British performer and the American performer working with both? In terms of discipline and things? yes, uh, no, I think. In the old days, uh, English actors were not very disciplined. They used to drink a lot, you know? It was a sort of tradition to go on slightly tipsy. But that has all changed. <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know, there's some wonderful actors in America that, that also had that reputation. But thank goodness young people don't feel that that's a part of it anymore. And when even the actors we used to have who were famous uh, for a seeming lack of discipline who did drink and carry on, like Tallulah Bankhead and John Barrymore, Nevertheless, they had the tradition of discipline, even when they violated it, and they were determined to go on. Something about musicals. I mean, when you have to dance and you have to sing and you have to act, it's not just preparing for the acting; it's preparing for the dancing and the singing. So, which means that you know, if you're dancing a lot, you have to go to therapy, you have to go to physical, you have to go to dance class, you have to mm -hmm. swim, you have to ice after the show, you have to. Then, with your voice, you can't eat this, you can't do that, you can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like constant you know, preparation mm -hmm. for... What preparation do you have before each show? Swim, because I have um, tendonitis everywhere. Um, swimming, <laughs> mostly, and then I go to a form of Pilates, which is a form of dance, or I take, uh -huh. I always get to theater early and give myself a ballet bar. I ice after the show every night. What does that mean? What does that mean? Um, ice, um, because I have tendonitis, so you have to, um, after you dance, things swell up and you ice. Uh -huh to um, ice it down, my knees and my feet. My brother used to, when he was in song and dance, he danced in that, he used to get a huge bucket of ice and water and have it waiting for him and stick him them in right after the show and sit and then take off his makeup. I, I cannot do that. Now, is tendonitis curable? Um, not really. It's kind of a chronic thing. Um, you can keep it father? under control. What about Oh, yeah, my father can be able to walk. <laughs> oh, I disagree. <laughs> no, right, well, right. no, well, the doctors go, how do you walk? How are yeah. you doing this? And he just does it. No, he's, he's, you know, it's a lot of physical abuse that you, you do on yourself. And you have to take care of yourself, mm -hmm. you know, or else you will have a lot of pain. That's true. Um, but it's, it's three times as much work, I think, when you're in a musical. It's not, it's, it's not easy. It's really... No, um, it's not. Yeah, it's it's, it's a it's, lot more work here, I mean, in a musical doing eight shows a week as opposed to an opera doing a maximum of four a week. Right. Um, but yet at the same time, depending on the role that you're playing, um, you know, that also can be, be extremely hard. difficult. Or, or like a straight role, a legit play where you mm -hmm. don't sing at all or dance at all, where you're just acting. That's mm -hmm. what I crave to do. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for the day I when I just wait. can do a straight play when uh, I'm not worrying about warming exactly. up the voice right. for an hour exactly. before every show. Is that what so you me. want to do? Do, do you and want you to do straight? Oh, yes, I'd love to. 
<laughs> but see, yeah, that's not what doing at the show. <laughs> that raspy voice is very good on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of straight, who, right? who else would like to do, go into a straight play without oh, singing? Oh, in a straight well, I, I, I don't know. For me, it's just you know wherever I think the, the work that I believe in takes me. You know, whether I mean, my my next project could be an opera. You know, if it's if it's the right part for me, or if the right part for me were to come along in a straight play, I would want to do that as well. Yeah. You know, I think it depends on where, you know, you're, the soul of the artist craves to go to next, and whatever you know, opportunity drops in your lap. For That's some reason, I feel awesome. that it's the challenge. You know, mm -hmm. that I mean, and I get off on that. I mean, if there's a challenge, you know, then I'm going to go for it and try to you know conquer whatever that is. Right. And that is what this is all about: mm -hmm. is that you know keeping healthy is a challenge. You know, and the minute you 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 become you catch you catch that bug, then you end up and, you know and saying, okay, I lost the challenge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting too, when you do get involved in something and you have that discipline, it does simplify your life mm -hmm. in a weird way because mm -hmm. it focuses you. Mm -hmm. When you're not working, is when you just your go, life go is astray. all over the place. Yeah, you go and it suddenly it goes whoop. And then you have a purpose every minute of every day, and it's nice mm -hmm. in a way, you know. What happens when it's not working? Yeah. And, and what happens to your performance and to the audience's reaction to it when it's not working? Do you bring? Can you have something to bring forth that 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 you can rise above this? That you can respond to your your responsibility as an actress towards it's the, it's the instrument towards that the audience respond. I mean, if you get hung up with it. right. I mean, if something goes wrong and you're not singing that day well, or you're not. You're not feeling well. A lot you of have it. to let go of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. there's a point where you can go crazy and That's erotic right. and get like, I just didn't sing that note well, mm -hmm. and it ruined my whole performance. And you know, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that by mm -hmm. seeing, you know, my boyfriend actually. He's in. Um, he's my fiance, and he's in Beauty and the Beast right now. And he's like so neurotic about this one note. And I've <laughs> I've gone to the show and seen it and seen him blow the note completely. And, knew, and you know. Yeah. And even even people would know. I mean, it was that bad, but <laughs> but no one cared. And I kept trying to say to him, "Honey, it's not even about it. Yeah. You don't realize how much you bring to that role and how much no one cares." Well, I can give you one good example of that. When I was doing Lady Day, which was a one-woman show, which was the story of Billie Holiday's life. I remember making the mistake of going out on stage for a matinee after having been really sick for the past two or three days with a really bad cough and a really sore throat, but thinking it was fine and I was singing on it, so I didn't know there was going to be a problem this day, the third day of the illness, and I went to work and I didn't really, I didn't warm up. I did not warm up. I went to a half hour, put on my makeup, went out on stage, opened my mouth to sing and realized there was no voice. I didn't have a voice, and the whole show was songs, 22 songs, one after the other. And I remember turning to my musical director, Danny Holgate, saying, Danny, you have to take all the keys down. You have to lower everything. And he said, like, what, a half a step, a whole step? I said, no, lower it a third, lower it a fourth. You really have to lower it. I can't, I, I could not sing the notes. I ended up talking through the whole show for like an hour and 45 minutes, just talking and acting through those songs. Mm -hmm. I got a standing ovation after the show. Nobody in the audience, except those who knew I was deathly ill, they thought that that's the way I was supposed to perform the show. Yeah. Just half dead or something. Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's how I was this day. No, but that's what we're talking about here, is, you know, is, is being a professional. Well, I think and that makes the show a difference must go between on. Rosemary being at the door <laughs> and being an old lady and being a professional on stage and knowing also, what to call upon and do yeah. that overcome so that the audience gets their money's worth, you know, and that right. audience is a very 
important ingredients. Oh, in they are the ingredients. Mm -hmm. And that's where the technique comes in, too, like uh, studying or versus exactly. not studying. Mm -hmm. Whether it's an opera technique or any other type of a good vocal technique, basically is the same as an opera technique. And it allows you, it gives you the tools you need so that when the voice isn't working properly and you are sick and you're not well and you feel you can't do it, you can. You but can you know, if you, you rely know, on technique. Yeah, also, though, I mean, to expound on that, that even if you haven't been trained, you can develop your own technique that's true too. to get through it you know and true that true. you have to rely on and and also believe in um, is whether it's sheer guts or technique some one way or the other you know you're gonna sure. persevere. I think also you need to really I think it's very important that when as you need to take everything I, I believe you need to take everything not bring your baggage on stage with no, you, no, but no. you need to take everything that has happened to you in that day or or use what has happened in the world in that day and use it when you get on stage exactly. I remember when the OJ Simpson thing happened and we're dealing with a, a show about wife beating there was no way that no one in the audience wasn't thinking about the fact that OJ Simpson was being chased down a freeway at that moment mm -hmm. and we're doing a show about wife beating mm -hmm. we we had to use it you know I mean so just the same as like when you're sick so you bring that reality yeah. to your character yeah, but as long as you're 100% committed to that you and committed to that we're all having a group consciousness now of what's going on in the society or what's going on with Lynette when she's sick or so they're thinking Billy God she was so sick she was so unhealthy she was drinking That's so much right. and still look what she was able to do yeah. you have to bring I think that is just as important as a part of a technique and a discipline as the actual Rosemary, you know physical what do you do? it is what do you do well there's a wonderful doctor I know called Dr. Theater <laughs> <laughs> And the old adage is, however ill you're feeling, as an actor I'm talking, not as a singer, is that somehow when you get on stage, you shoot out that adrenaline, and adrenaline is a great cure. Mm -hmm. And somehow all your aches and pains disappear for that time that you're on the stage. Mm -hmm. And you think, how did I do that? Because you come off and then you collapse. But, mm -hmm. You know, yeah. there is something that happens. Does the audience you help you in that? Do you respond to an audience if you, if you feel that that you really feel terrible and this is a terrible audience as well what do you do about that if the audience is terrible well edith evans once was talking to a group of young students and she said when she was a young actress she came off stage and she said oh the audience were terrible tonight and an older actor sort of beckoned her and said listen edith has it ever occurred to you have you ever thought how good you were tonight <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget they have paid to see you you have not paid to see them. That's right. That's right. That's the truth. One of the things that's happened in the Times today is the Madison Carousel will be closing. Yeah. So that's one more factor that goes into the discipline of mm -hmm. acting as if, without regard to whatever, or embracing whatever. Because uh, have you known for a week or so that this was going to be the case? Well, to talk about getting uh, what happens in your day into your show, they told us at half hour. Uh, before a show, yes, and I, usually, uh, uh, I think it was Thursday night, um, and they told us before you know it was printed in the papers. But that's yeah. the only time they can gather the entire cast and everybody together. Mm -hmm. And we had a everything was relevant that night. Every time Mrs. Mullins said stop the carousel, we were like, oh my god! <laughs> but we ended up having a very, I mean, everybody's energy and focus was on. Wow, we're not going to be able to do this for very much longer. Mm -hmm. And so we all brought in that to our mm -hmm. show. And we ended up having a really wonderful show that night. We had tons of understudies on, but we had a, a great show that night because we had a lot of questions. And, and so I'm going to ask the, to turn it over to our audience. Do you want to ask your question? Sure. My name is Shelton Domenici. This is addressed to all of you. Um, how did you, as struggling actors before your break, achieve the visibility to get agents, casting directors, everybody that is in the industry? interested in you and how do you maintain that visibility in between shows 
You know what I was going to say? My first comment on that was going to say, when you say before the break or before the big break, I find that careers, performance careers, are a series of breaks. Mm -hmm. It's a series of surviving from one job to the next and wondering what you're going to do next. It never stops, ever. So for me, there was no one break. It's still a question of now, what am I going to do after Showboat? That's why I hope it's going to be more writing, producing, and directing. So I'm a little more in control of that. Any other? Well, I mean, I, you know, like just just finding out that Carousel is closing, people are like, uh, like my family's like, oh, well, you got that Tony, so you'll get a job, won't you? Like, no, that doesn't mean anything. You know, I mean, it means you've been recognized by your community, but it doesn't mean anything. So I think what you have to do is just, you know, constantly keep reworking your craft and keep yourself out there and not and the other thing is not expect that you deserve uh, no no let me say see if I can say this right the world does not owe you a living that's right Right. you got to go out there and get it so don't just say well I've got my Tony give me my give me my next job you make your own break and there's one thing to say also you can get jobs without an agent Mm-hmm. And backstage, I mean, everyone, all of us did at one point. I did. Um, I went through backstage weekly and did everything that I could, and that's how I got my first job. It took me a couple mm-hmm. of years, but I constantly pursued. And you can get a job without an agent, mm-hmm. and you can do it on your own. Yeah, reading the trades and, and going to all auditions that you can, as well as, um, mm-hmm. yeah, as well as making phone calls, you know, doing the... Uh, the, the networking right. is basically what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times you'll end up with an agent that uh, you may not have a good uh, relationship with that may not have anything to do with jobs. <laughs> it just could be that he, you know, personality conflict. And you have to consider that as well. I think that sort of gives you some ideas. Would you like to ask questions? I'm Linda Satala, and uh, I really appreciated all your personal stories. Uh, some schools came up while you were talking, and so I wanted to ask, um, I guess, Audra and Rosemary, if you make it a point to uh, somehow go back to your school and uh, do workshops or lectures or anything like that. Well, I'm involved with a scholarship program at um, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art because my roommate when I was there was killed in an automobile crash many, many years ago, and so a fund was collected in her name and it is given to an American student to help them go to the British Royal Academy of Dramatic Art because it's very, very hard to survive there with living expenses and tuition. So I've sat in on a lot of auditions. I've never taught at RADA. Catherine Packer, and my question is for Audra. Um, I was wondering how your experience was different working with a British director. Um, well, I've only, I've only worked with one other uh, a professional director, and that was Susan Shulman in um, Secret Garden. And my, the, the, I think the difference is is that they kind of have, or Nick Heitner had this hands-on, hands-off approach where he would just kind of guide you and then let you find what was uh, within you. And then if you were way off, he'd say, "Ah, oh, come back over here a little bit." Mm-hmm. And then, but he he worked from the actors. He did not. He had a vision of the show, cast it the way he wanted to cast it, and then worked with, uh, then let the actors. The first day of rehearsal, when we started the mound scene, he said, "Okay, Audra, go." I had the first line, and I was like, "What?" He's like, "Okay, go," and we kind of shaped it that way. And I think that's, I think it's an incredible way to work. I mean, because it really is a group effort. In that way. Thank you. My name is John Francis Fox. My question is to Rosemary Harris. Since you've also done a lot of stage work in England, can you tell us the major difference between American and British audiences? Oh, 
There's a vast difference. Um, American audiences are much more outgoing, uh, much more generous in their applause. And it's because of, I think, national characteristics. Americans as a people are much more outgoing, they're less reserved. English people, are, you know, it seems like coldness and shyness, but they're very, very self-conscious. So they don't make much noise when they go to the theater. They don't like to draw attention to themselves, and they don't like to participate. Whereas playing to an American audience is, is just wonderful, really. Makes a yeah. big difference. Thank you. As Americans, have any of you worked in England? I did. You have. I did Carrie, uh, the musical Carrie. Oh, um, wow. Oh, my. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I was in Stratford, actually. We did that in yes. Stratford, and we rehearsed in London, and, and then we came here. My name is Jed Miller, and my question, I guess, is for all of you, particularly, I guess, Rosemary Harris. It's about revivals. You talked about updating the script and the themes of an older show for a contemporary performance. What about acting style? How do you, how do you deal with the challenges? Is it a training? It's a matter of training. How do you deal with the challenges presenting an older maybe something that was written to be performed in an older style. Well, Shakespeare, I think, had the answer, or one of the answers, when he gives Hamlet the advice to the players, and he says, give to each play the age and body of its time, meaning the play can be translated into modern... But my feeling is that unless a director or an actor can play the play the way it was written and in the age and body of when it was written they shouldn't then update it I get rather upset when plays get updated and made modern and I feel they don't even understand what the play is about in its own period but um, I've forgotten what your question was <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry <laughs> did answer it? Keep on talking. <laughs> <laughs> sorry Keep about on that talking. <laughs> I'd like to ask a question I'm, and I'd like it to be around table, round panel discussion. How do you deal with auditions? I faint. faint. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever. Okay. <laughs> or that takes care of me. How, how often have you done auditions and have you prepared for them? What kind of preparation do you do for them? As much as you, I mean, you, you really research the material you're auditioning for and uh, you just, the thing is you have to kind of, for me, I try and just go in there being who they want me to be and doing my work and letting whatever else happens that's fine you know if, if I get the job that's gravy but as long as I've gone in there and felt like I've done my work as a performer that's Charlotte did you yeah, have to I audition? Don't think, yeah I don't think you ever ever conquer auditioning or ever control it like you want to um, it's a struggle constantly and will always be and I think that's what you have to let go of um, because when you you just never know and you go in and sometimes do you, you do learn well. how to do auditions you can learn to a point but then I swear sometimes you think you you've got a handle on it and and you just wake up that morning and you just don't I I really think um, but you can to a point I mean you learn as you go and and um, it's just I think that you you cannot you can learn to get to a certain point where you don't go down that far. You know what I mean? You, so you're not that bad, but <laughs> like you do. But you you but you, so you know what I mean? But then you still always and sometimes you hit and you don't even. Michelle, no, you want to take it from here? Yeah, uh, I think a lot of times if you just gear into yourself, have fun. I mean that's the last thing I that's the last thing I that realized um, because. Auditioning is like, um, you know, uh, midterms. 
you just you it, it it brings you know sweaty palms you start you know fainting you know whatever and it just drives you crazy but if you can get past all that take a deep breath and go in and just have fun and be yourself as much as you can you know then you can walk away saying well if they don't like me fine i'm i'm going on to the next audition you know whatever rosemary well it's a long time since i've audition but I can speak from the other side especially with the scholarship program I sat in on a lot of auditions and I I learned a very important thing that the auditionee you, you form an impression of the auditionee the moment they come into your, your vision and all you want them to say is look I'm here your worries are over you need look no further I am who you want <laughs> and I think if you come on with that sort of attitude it, it, it goes a long way to people saying by golly yes that is who we want I think it's really important to always remember what an audition is it's a competitive situation some of us don't like competing on any level in any sense of the word you're up against who knows how many other performers who are up for the same role and you're being you know you're being scrutinized many people are walking in the room before you and after you trying to get the same job and it, it is what it is so i don't think there's any way to really make that a comfortable wonderful enjoyable experience unless you love to compete <laughs> unless you just live to compete it is what it is and you yeah. just i think you have to take it as we talked about as a challenge yeah. and as an exercise in some sort of self discipline self i don't know something <laughs> you know see how good you can do in it for yourself mm -hmm. does it work when you do that i think it works better i think it works better because then it's not about do they like me am I right for this role it's about I'm gonna do this today for me and this makes me feel good because I you know I did my best. find out why you didn't get it? Sometimes you do find out. I like to know why I didn't mm -hmm. get it. I think it's important. Was it did I come in with a funny attitude that day because I argued with a cab driver? Is it because I'm too tall? Is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm not black enough? Mm -hmm. Did I not read well? Did I not sing well? Or none of the above? Right. Well here we are <laughs> the end of the program again and I have to say it's been just fabulous to listen to these people talk about what it is to work in the theater and this is the American Theater Wing seminar coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and working in the theater seminars are just one of our year-round programs these seminars focus on the performance and the play script director the production and the set costume and scene designer. I'm Isabel Stevenson, I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and I am indeed proud to be able to call upon the people that we do that tell us what it is to work in the theatre, to work year in, year out in the theatre, and bring us, the audience, such wonderful pleasure and enjoyment. Thank you all for being here.